Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this really fun episode with my good buddy, Dan Egan, uh, I want to take a second to remind you to listen to the all the way to the end of the episode to hear the secret message from Brandon Yoakum, our mastering engineer, and also to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. It's been a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic shut everything down, and we're still feeling the effects to this day. While it's possible to move about with more safety these days, it's still a good idea to be as safe as possible. In order to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free in-person virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice as well. Pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you, terms and conditions apply, it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it easier to test, drive, and purchase the best equipment during our uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today we're all in for a treat. Anytime I have the opportunity to be graced by the presence of Dan Egan, it's always a wonderful time. Uh, Dan and I have known each other for a number of years, and uh, I cherish our friendship. We don't get to talk as much as I wish we would, so that's part of the reason for this podcast is just wanting to connect again. But also, I think there, Dan Egan, in his uh, career of being a freelancer, an educator, a clinician, and all-around great guy and great player, I think there's just a lot of um, a lot of people in a similar position of just like putting the work in, trying to figure it out. And uh, I imagine just any uh, we'll get to some of this stuff, but any amount of words you have that can be of encouragement and things like that, uh, I, I'm sure that we can all use it, especially. Uh, I know you've been active in trying to do recitals and and stuff like that to try to keep yourself moving forward or whatever reasons that you may have that I don't know, but I'm excited to kind of dig into that. So before we get started, thanks, D. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time tonight so we can chat. Yeah, Ryan, it's a great pleasure to be with you. All right, let's start with your backstory. Take us back as far as is necessary for us to get a sense of how you got into music, when you picked up the trumpet, some of your uh, educational path, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Um, my educational path started in elementary school. I started trumpet in the fourth grade. I was extremely lucky to have a trumpet player teach me. Max Morton actually just played a piece of his on my most recent recital. Uh, he was a jazz player. He did tons of playing on Broadway, um, plenty of great legit recordings, and was just kind of this 
plentiful sum of information. I mean, just had so many great recordings uh, from Phil Smith to Clifford Brown. Um, it, it was just all under his fingertips. So if you ever needed something to kind of get those inspirational juices flowing, a little bit of inertia in the direction of playing trumpet, he was always able to give that to you. Uh, so I was extremely fortunate in that regard. Um, studied with him throughout high school and uh, was just extremely you know, gracious for his, his tutelage, as they say. And um, so sure enough, yeah, so that was a great experience. And then right at the end of high school, I went to study at um, Juilliard Pre-College, which was another fantastic experience. Um, my first year there, I studied with Kevin Cobb. Um, I listened to a lot of his solo CD. Um, one, if anyone hasn't checked it out, is a fantastic disc. He records postcards and Fisher Tully profiles, um, a bunch of really, really fantastic playing. And it's really no frills. It's, it's all laid bare. It's a full unaccompanied uh, trumpet solo um, tour de force, I think you would say. And uh, that was really fantastic. And just hearing his sound in the same room as the Juilliard School for, for Young Wizards was, uh, <laughs> was really, really fantastic. And uh, then my last year, I was very, very fortunate to study with Kyle Resnick, who plays in the National and with Bon Iver and a number of, uh, and actually recently with Taylor Swift. He, he recently played on Taylor Swift's album. Um, just a fantastic guy, actually was my introduction to Indiana and um, with New York legend Ray Mace. Um, who I still call Mr. Mace to this day because I just have so much respect for the guy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just, just uh, I had a very, very uh, privileged upbringing in music. Um, and then even earlier than that, music was always out in the house. It wasn't necessarily classical music. Um, a lot of classic rock, a lot of Bruce Springsteen. I'm from New Jersey. And um, yeah, it was, it was just extremely gracious and fortunate to have music um, kind of flossing my ears at, e at each point. You're, yeah, like that's something I immediately remember about any, spending any amount of time with you is you're just vast. Well, two things. One, your propensity to just put on a recording and just like totally dig into it no matter what it was. And B, somehow you get these recordings that like they may not have even league like happened so that somehow you have recordings of things that are impossible that you have um so are you a i'm under the assumption after hearing that that you just carried on that tradition from your first teacher of having just a plethora of different uh, i guess recordings to choose from to gain inspiration because i would say it's inspiring to be around you and to see how much you just love it and dig into it i wonder if that's maybe where it came from well, thank you. I, I take that compliment to heart. Um, yeah, I, I guess now that I think about it, I've never kind of reverse engineered backwards how the love of music started. It's kind of something that I always just remember being there. Um, but yeah, uh, Max definitely fostered a distinctive love of recordings. Um, there are a number of times in high school that I remember just sitting awestruck in a chair um, hearing a Phil Smith recording, hearing, and also they were, they were just within earshot. So New Jersey to New York, I was kind of in the metro area. And all of those influences and influencers, blue check mark, were all right <laughs> there 
Uh, does Phil Smith have a blue check mark yet? Can we get a check on that? Uh, he should. He should. I'm going to start a GoFundMe. Um, but yeah, it's just it was always kind of right there for me. And um, I think, yeah, turning on a, a recording of some music that you genuinely associate with um, on kind of a spiritual level always makes my practice better and uh, more informed. And especially in my shoes, as you said before, where I'm uh, really trying to get the ball rolling on a lot of stuff, uh, when I'm not playing with people all the time as I once did in school, where I don't have solo class, where I don't have um, this kind of engine that's there to propel me forward, you need to take responsibility for yourself in that regard. Um, Always staying nourished with great recordings and great music makers, movers and shakers, within um the idiom that you're trying to influence yeah that's one of the things about having a job i find to be difficult is um you're like doing the job and to some extent you can i don't want to say fool yourself but whatever a positive version of fool yourself is is to feel like well because i'm doing it because i'm playing regularly i'm getting that inspiration um, but it's not, it's not at all the same. And like I said, when you came and played with us, it was such a stark, distinct difference between how I felt like I went about doing the job and how you went about doing the job. Like you brought this joy where like we played something loud and you were excited about it versus My singer. My yeah, singer. yeah, I exactly. That. I remember that. <laughs> versus like where I was, where I was just like, all right, like, are we going to the bar, bar now? You know what I mean? Like I, I lost, but I used to be like, I lost some of that. So, um, but it's a, it's a, you're right. It's a good perspective. I think like it's on us, take the, on, the onus is on us to be able to have the understanding of why it's important to cultivate that desire. So I'm, a, I'm a, I guess I'm curious what your perspective is of um, not just for the love of music, but from like a possible growth or developmental standpoint, why do you feel like uh, associating with so many recordings is uh, important for people to do? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that uh, it's very easy to kind of become increasingly myopic towards fixing a problem. Uh, you fix a problem because that's what your teacher told you to do. Or I guess on a slightly more meta level, it will impede your artistic expression. But um, I think really crucially, if you don't have a sound in your head that needs to get out, if you don't have this kind of gravitational pull towards wanting to say something on your instrument, um, you can have all of the technique. You can have the natural tongue position and embouchure location, placement of the mouthpiece, and it's just never going to get to the end zone. Because as we know, talking to people in jobs, etc., so many of those people still go through dark times in incredibly prominent positions, um, playing something as fickle as a brass instrument. So if you don't, at the end of that process, have the answer, well, it's because I really love it, um, you're probably pursuing a lot of dead ends, I think. Do you feel like it's possible to love it, to lose it, and to find it again? Or do you feel like it's once Certainly. you love... Yeah, yeah, I feel like... I don't know where I exist in that spectrum. Like, I, I either loved it and, like, kind of lost it, or I may not have, like, loved music itself, but was rather possibly chasing 
status or, you know what I mean? I, there was this thing I was good at and I saw an opportunity for me to excel in it. And I think there was a love of, you know, loud brass corrals and stuff like that, but it quickly sort of moved away to like the reality of what my job is in particular of playing Beethoven and stuff like that all the time, which is great music, but it's not quite the reason I felt like I got into it. And I have very little control over getting into, I mean, you have some, but it's uh, very difficult to sort of have mobility in our field, I would say. Certainly. Okay. okay. Well, sorry, that was just a random rant. Uh, no, you, no, went no. To, <laughs> you went to uh, undergrad. Baby, I'm here for you. I'm here uh, for you, baby. Uh, so IU for your undergrad. Uh, you want to talk about that a That's little bit, right. what that experience was like? And um, I mean, it's one of the biggest music schools uh, in the country. So I'm just curious, like what your perspective was while you were there. So I studied with uh, with John Rommel, knew very little about school, was definitely kind of uh, an East Coast sycophant. I was super um, a little bit supremacist about like the New York scene, Juilliard, MSM, NEC, and uh, got the largest serving of humble pie when I didn't get into any of those schools. Um, got into, and this isn't used, but as a pejorative, I got into my safety schools. I got into Rutgers and IU um, and quickly found out that these weren't safety schools in the least. These were filled to the brim with talented players. Um, some of my best friends to this day are people who I met at that school and not because they were the company that I kept, but because I really respected what they were doing. Um, of course, you can gravitate towards people who you know, don't sound great on the instrument all the time, but it certainly helps if you're trying to sound great on the instrument. If someone has a little piece of the puzzle that you've yet to acquire. Um, so yeah, at, at my time at IU was just filled with growth and trumpet obsession and playing lots of hours. Um, I think it, it's probably pretty common that I didn't, uh, I wasn't as structured or as organized as I might be now in my practice. Um, not the biggest fan of slow practice. Really liked to play loud uh, <laughs> when I was in undergrad. Um, yeah, so there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of organization and structure, but there's a lot of face time and the teeth cutting, as it were. Um, I was very, very focused on um, just listening and taking in as much information as I possibly could and hearing my teacher. If you've never heard John Rommel, he is in a astounding presence as a trumpet player. I mean, he's just a huge guy. He's built like a linebacker um, and just has so much charisma and personality on the instrument. Um, I still remember just so many, so many times trying to conceptualize what a great trumpet sound was and, and thinking, how can I, how can I get back to that place? And him just saying, no, it's not like this. It's not like this hand gesture right down the middle of the horn. And that being the guiding light to most of my undergrad and really simplifying. I think that that was huge for me. Um, I was a very introspective guy before starting at IU. Um, and he kind of made trumpet a more simplistic process than I thought it was before. Mm -hmm. And um, said, no, hear the sound, play the sound, meet the resistance of the instrument, uh, blow to a certain point do all of these little things well, of course, but ultimately it needs to be 
this kind of pseudo Chickowitz approach with a Rommel, uh, Bill Adam twist that um, really set me up to do what I did later, which was um, pursue a master's degree at Rice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we don't overcomplicate this, the processes of like what's actually happening. But I wonder sometimes, like at least what happened for me is I kind of relied, I was a player that relied on, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to take a breath and go. And that took me to the that took me to the point where that could take me. And then to sort of break past that, I had to actually acknowledge, I may not really understand fully what, how the trumpet works. Like I might need to understand like what, I mean, not necessarily from a physics perspective, but what components are necessary for me to be able to, like, what am I trying to normalize? Like in terms of like the, my approach to the instrument, how do I want things to feel and flow? But like, if things aren't working, do I understand why? they're not working so that I can possibly design something that will fix it. Do you feel like you ran into that uh, with that, with sort of leaning towards a simple, more simple approach? Do you feel like you ran into that at all? Or did you feel like John was good about well, filling I, that too? I think that like from a first principle standpoint, I kind of came from a point of overthinking and overcomplicating. And then I went to the more simplistic place and then I kind of refound myself um, with, with professor Butler, with Barbara. Um, so yeah, I, I think that I was kind of a, a tinkerer by nature. I was kind of someone who was always like moving this piece this way and trying to figure out my way, um, through playing with these like independent, independent variables, just uh, here, here, tinker, tinker, tinker. Um, and then Rommel kind of like, like big banged the whole universe <laughs> into this place where it was like, actually, it's much more simple than you think. Um, if you just hear the sound and play the sound and don't worry too much, take some time off and uh, in kind of a reverse, uh, it was once described to me by one of my good friends as, as blue collar Zen. It was this very humble approach that actually had very deep roots, um, which was fantastic for me coming out of New York and all the baggage that I had not getting into schools there. Um, thinking I was hot shit when I was just um, not doing what I needed to be doing in order to be successful on the instrument. And not for lack of trying, mind you, like risking <laughs> yeah. injury, life and limb all the time, but uh, just not having my head engineered in the right way. So if there's, to have both perspectives, right, to be sort of uh, a tinker, come to the sort of more simplistic uh, approach, which I'm generally a fan of, and then kind of finding your own way of doing things. How do, if someone's out there and they don't have access to some of that, but they want to try to self-diagnose, are there ways that people can sort of identify themselves as maybe I'm thinking too much? Are there signs and symptoms of that versus the signs and symptoms of maybe I don't know quite enough? Like I kind of described like, yeah, I basically hit a, like a problem and I wouldn't understand like what's going on and how to fix it. So then you're just completely reliant on like, Ever, nothing to ever be wrong in that sort of, I'm just going to yeah, hear well, it. First and, and foremost, they can always buy my snake oil at danegan.com, blogspot <laughs> danegan. Um, Blog no, of course, I, I think that the inspirational component is, is really important. So like having people that you admire who have gone through kind of the same turmoil of studying an instrument that you have is really important. So you know that it's not just, um, you know that it's not just these these kind of golden boys and girls who have had everything coalesced for them in this perfect way. 
um, like in utero. Ooh, yuck. Um, but like, but it, it hasn't been just this kind of perfect progression that's always been like this, that when you actually dig a little bit beneath the surface, you find out that people are much, uh, much more tender and a little bit insecure about what they do on the instrument. And, um, and that you need that kind of rebound. You, you need that kind of inflection point to talk to people who have those insecurities um, who might not be, who might not show them in their trumpet playing. But it's strange, you know, some of the, the most influential and charismatic artists and trumpet players are some of these deeply feeling and sensitive people. Um, and that when they step on stage, it kind of all falls by the wayside. But then when you talk to them about how it felt, like the subjective experience of being up there, like, man, I was terrified as shit. That was some crazy, yeah. man, I can't believe I did that. And there's kind of this, this um, like, men in black pen moment, as if they, like, they have this, this, this kind of zapping of their short-term memory um, when they go on stage. And then they get off stage and like, how did that happen? And I think having those influences there for you, um, people who are playing big shows all the time, uh, who are playing big concerts, who are playing Mahler symphonies, ream to ream, uh, it, it's crucial. Yeah, I've had. I'm not a, sure if that answers your question. Uh, it doesn't at all, but it's a good. It's a better jumping off point. Uh, <laughs> I find this to be fascinating about professionals. This is something that I feel like I've actually had. I've been able to manage pretty well, like a generally a pretty accurate assessment of my playing, right? But I know some professionals who will play, and then you ask them how they'll how they did. And they'll be like, I don't know. Like maybe not even saying like I was terrified, but just being very critical, right? Like very critical. And then you listen back to like their performance or something. And it's like almost upsetting. It's like we're, we must be listening to two completely different things. You know, I'm listening to this, but what you described to me doesn't even come close to accurately, you know, uh, depicting or whatever what actually happened. And I find this to be a very important part about being a, a musician over the long term is getting an accurate way to assess like how things are going so that we can continue improving, but we're not overly critical to the point where we're just in a negative headspace because so many musicians on the pursuit of, quote, perfection, because we'll never get there, it's just we can always be in the sort of this negative down area of like, I'm just never able to do what I want. So I'm curious to go in this direction. If you have any thoughts about that, if you've had any struggles about sort of negative headspaces related to just being really critical and hard on yourself, maybe even tying it into studying with Barbara because that's about the most intense period of my life that like I would have been critical on myself at a time when I would not have been able to produce the sound I wanted to on a regular basis, if that makes sense. So I'm just curious if you've struggled with these kinds of things and if you have any thoughts about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that... Um the greatest critic that I've needed to turn off is myself. Um, there's, there's that old quote that, that you're always the easiest person to fool. And I found in my career that uh, when I get off stage and feel like garbage, um, those are oftentimes some of, the, you know, maybe it didn't feel so great, but I still have this, this kind of undergirding musical personality that shines through in some cases. Yeah. I don't know how true that is, but you know, <laughs> I, I have I have a part of myself that kind of to the beginning of, of the podcast, 
that I love to play trumpet so much that there's a bit of that that shines through. So there will be a special moment that I think sounds pretty good for myself. Um, and then when I think that things are sounding pretty good and uh, things are, are working as I designed them in the lab, there's always a little bit something that I would tinker with again. So I think it's just getting used to the process of being a little bit dissatisfied with yourself, but falling in love with the process over and over again. Um, trying to balance out that perfectionist side of your thinking um, with just the love of the game, you know, that kind of like Mamba-ish. I just love to wake up at four and do poo attacks, you know? Um, <laughs> anyone else out there in the great ether of, of <laughs> podcast plan like to do poo attacks? No. Um, and then just... I think um, continually going back to recordings and finding that inspiration in the music, in something that is like grounded in such a source of profundity, like that it's bigger than you. Like, why do you, why do you play? Addressing those like first principled questions of like, why do you play the trumpet? Well, it's because I love making music and uh, I don't know where I would be without the profundity of, of Mahler symphonies and Bruckner symphonies and, uh, Wynton Marsalis, like all of these people uh, have forged, uh, you know, a life for me. And those are um, the, the kind of like inflection points when I think professionally, obviously taking my, my family and my friends like you at, out, of, out of the equation, it's professionally, I, I can't see myself in a different space. So finding that love, um, even when things aren't going so well, even when you can't play soft in the lower register, even uh, when the tongue's a little thuddy, um, even when you hear something that's like, man, back to the drawing board, um, finding the gas in the tank, that's that's just inspiration, I think. Yeah, this is, in some ways, you're like sort of speaking to where I am right now. You know, I would say my why for a very long time has been, I enjoy having a puzzle to solve and I wanted to to just work and work and work to like basically conquer the trumpet, right? To get to a point where I could mm. just play the trumpet the way I wanted to play it. And in 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 a greater sense of that, I have. Like I can do most things that I want to do. Hell yeah. And yeah. and like even throughout the pandemic, I've grown so much uh, in terms of consistency of playing and and being able to sort of let go and still have things be there. So now I'm left with, I think, exactly what you just said. Like, if I've, like, hypothetically accomplished the goal to the degree that I want, like, what's the next one? And if the ne mm. I'm, I'm kind of leaning into, like, I think the next one is to, like, figure out how would I apply this in like profound musical ways, you know, because I'm not sure I've always really put that as a priority for a very yeah. long time, you know, and the pursuit of sort of technical excellence for the sake of saying, if I am able to achieve an understanding of how to create that, I believe it'll make my music making easier, so to speak, in terms of being able to reproduce it on a regular basis. But yeah, it's like, it's very helpful even for me to hear coming back to, you know, recordings that drive inspiration and like really digging in and remembering that's like why it's like kind of where I'm at right now as a quote professional, you know, after him doing all this yeah, time. So yeah, I don't yeah. think it ever goes divide, away. That divide between professional and student. I just like, mean like, so yeah. strange. 
And I just mean like, I, I think it's, the whole point of that whole sort of statement was just to say, I think it's, it's easy to lose it. That's all I'm saying. I think it's easy no matter who you are and where you are, if it's sort of not in some fashion on the forefront of your mind or at least something you can remind yourself of, it's really easy to get caught up in the sort of perfectionistic aspects of what we do, which are somewhat necessary to a degree to be able to get better and to excel. But like being able to temper it with that is easy to lose, I think. So, I, I mean, that's yeah, all yeah. I mean by that. Yeah, there's something I think really, really kind of that recurring process of finding something that you lost again um, has kind of like deep fissures in the game of life. I think you can really, um, it, it's the place where I find the most joy is um, relearning a lesson that I taught myself when I was young um, about something musical or technical. Um, I, I think that that's really, really crucial to growth and development. And if you don't want to be humble about those lessons, it will force you to be humble. Um, the trumpet is just not an instrument for the faint of heart. And it's an incredibly humble, just the best trumpet players I know are really unhappy with some performances that they have. And these are people who I've looked up to as these kind of uh, men and women of steel, so to speak. They're, they're so dedicated to the process of playing well and what do you do but pick up the pieces when it doesn't turn out that way. And I think it really speaks to what you said about finding that blend between the perfectionist mindset, um, knowing that you're capable of better and wishing that you, you know, had played a little bit better. So that gets your butt in the practice room. Uh, but what keeps your head screwed on straight as it were, is, is um, kind of a, a, a deep understanding that you are more than your trumpet playing and um, that uh, you should be happy that you even get to do this crazy thing. Um, like you, you wouldn't imagine, the, like when I, when I talk to just like random strangers, oh, what do you do? I play the trumpet. Oh, you can do that for a living very bizarre that you're able to, to make a living. And, and still, still to this day, even with family members, oh, do you play in a band? Oh, Danny, do you play in a band? Oh, Jesus. Uh, it's incredible that you're able to do all this. How do you make a living? It's like, I don't know. Mom, how do I make a living? Um, it's, uh, and still, a, a friend Leibowitz on this show that she has, recommended to me by a good friend of mine, uh, Gabe Schlesinger, mm -hmm. Um, has this line about people living in New York, and I think it has uh, a connection to trumpet playing, that, that people who live in New York, they move there and they say, how am I going to pay for this? And then they get there and they have no idea how they pay for it, but they do. And trumpet playing, I have no idea how I'm going to play this program. I have no idea how I'm going to prepare all this music for this list or for the upcoming season. i got to play Helderlebe and Amalur Three and Alsusbrock and blah, 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 blah. And yet they do. Um, and I think to be in, in kind of a state of bewilderment with, uh, with the fact that you get to do this for a lifetime, if you're lucky, uh, is, is, is a good spot to be in. And I'm still there. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective because a lot of musicians get really, uh, you know, upset about, I did not hang on just a sec. Oh crap. 
Yeah, it's an interesting perspective, I think, because musicians, when we hear people say like, oh, you can do that for a living, it's uh, upsetting because they're like, yeah, of course, like, how do you not know this? But to take the perspective of like, yeah, you, you can. And I'm one of those lucky people who, you know, you've put in the time, but you've also had things work out to such a degree that you could, you could, you know, do something like that. To use it as someone asking that question is like, it is a little bit unbelievable that this is how we could make a living. I appreciate that perspective. It's nice. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I, I see being lost amongst my friends and jobs. Of course, the situation complicates once you have to work with people. Um, people are not the, the works of Beethoven, De Mahler, and Strauss, and et cetera. Like, they're fallible. Um, in important ways. They're distrusting and political and all this other stuff. But um, I think the more, as someone who's never played a job, so take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> um, the, more, the more you can get back to that place of humility and grace for getting to do this, I think the generally happier life that you'll lead. Yeah, and what I've learned... And by myself, help, help book coming out in September. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I've... Danny again, Tricks of the Trade. <laughs> Uh, what I feel like I've learned is very similar to what you just described. It's taken a long time, but I've basically had to say, like, I'm going to dictate how I do things. Like, I'm not going to let somebody else dictate how I go about doing my job. I'm going to say, mm. like, this is how I want to do my job because that's the kind of life I would like to lead. And then you do your best to figure out how to do that in ways that, you know, I don't want to say, like, doesn't offend people, but you try to do it in a way where you're like, I'm going to do this and that's okay. Um, and it took a long time to realize because when you get into a job, you feel like you have to start like playing, possibly start playing some sort of game to like getting the right people's like, you know, club or something like that. Or you're just yeah, freaking yeah. out about like keeping your job and it's about technical perfection. And it seems like a lot of what happens in a job has nothing to do with music whatsoever. Like music is the very last thing we're concerned about on a list of things. And, mm. um, so yeah. Having that uh, perspective, uh, I, I, to I totally think you're right. I, I think you, you kind of make that choice for how you want to go about what, what do you want your interaction to be with a life of music, and then you do your best just to hold that as you, like you said, sort of just do it and figure it out. Mm. Um, let's talk about Rice, because I know probably the trumpet players at least listening to this will be interested in your experiences at Rice and what it was like to study with Barbara and... Uh, I don't know. You can say whatever you want. I, I'm not trying to set you up for anything weird. I mean, she, but I mean, to, to anyone wondering whether uh, what's whether the secret? her legend, what's the secret? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's it, it, it's a shame because I think uh, I think Barbara gets so much of this credit, but but I, Charlie had so much of a, a like kind of fundamental um, like shifting of my framework and how I approached the trumpet. And frankly, some shit that I thought at like first hearing, I was like, that's crazy. I would, I would never do that. That's, that's nuts. Um, this really kind of like esoteric and like bohemian school of trumpets. Sometimes you got a tongue to get focused. It's like, what? Now you don't. Blows out the aperture. What do you got in your mind? Did you not read the book? And then like, you know, uh, you know, now six or seven years after the fact, it's like, damn, he's right about it all. Um, and, uh, so anyway, my time at Rice, uh, for, for people who don't know, I started there in 2014, 
I was uh, in school with two very good friends, Anthony Bellino and Danny Talvenheim. And uh, we started school together, uh, learned a lot from those guys, met still some of my best friends to this day. And uh, besides the friendships, the trumpet education was so comprehensive. It was, um, it was really, it, it, it was just a user's guide to how to play trumpet in an orchestra. Um, and also some of the dark corners of trumpet playing. I, I think a lot of trumpet pedagogy doesn't really address like how to deal with, you know, unruly section mates or how to deal with uh, someone who's not having their best day. And that was like Barbara and Charlie's soup du jour. It's like, yeah, this is just step into our wheelhouse. Um, when I got to Rice, I had a pretty good high register. Um, I, yeah, and my low register wasn't really there. And Barbara kept making these promises um, that were, you know, like your, your list will switch. The things that you're best at will now become a little bit um, more of something that you need to work on. It's like, check, please. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and the things that were totally deficient in your plan will become some of your strongest components. And uh, she couldn't have been more right. And uh, the amazing thing that I really wanted to to kind of flag in this podcast was that there's some teachers who are so influential that there are points in their teaching where like you're a little bit down on your luck and you might not believe in yourself as much as they do. And Barbara is copyright trademark and Charlie, but I studied with Barbara um, for at points, believing in you a little bit more than you might ordinarily believe in yourself. And that was a totally like reverse symbiotic relationship. There are, there are points where it's just like, man, I just can't think about tongue position anymore. Can we just talk about anything else? For the love of God, please. No, I don't want to think about the tip of my tongue. I don't want to think about two versus do versus do versus all of these other kind of like subtle trumpety things. Um, and yeah, Barbara just met all of those challenges with grace and humility and insistence. Um, it's a great, and, yeah, it's a uh, great word for insistence. She just does not, I, I, I remember walking into lessons with her and I would be playing like a low, like a Snedecor low etude. Woo! And then I would miss like a G at the top of the staff and we would just spend the like, 25 minutes talking about how not to miss that G. Like yeah. I, what I remember about her was it was like every lesson, we didn't talk about a ton of things, but the amount of focus and intensity on the things we talked about was so high. And I walked away being like, there's no way I, like she would always recommend people recorded their lessons and stuff like that. But even if you didn't, it's like, it's kind of hard to forget what she told you that would be help make you successful. And when you can reproduce it on your own, it becomes significantly easier to progress faster. The, the golden eggs of trumpet playing. Yeah. 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 Those are those like little just nuggets of, of like received wisdom from Bud or from Chickowitz or from Chris, even, you know, like the fact that, that they have all of these kind of patron saints in their, in their orbit, in their circle. Um, and one other thing I've noticed about a lot of teachers uh, is that they get this kind of temporary fascination with like one little school. And 
Barbara and Charlie have this unique ability, in my experience, to kind of take that information in, their recent obsession, because everyone has them. But they also maintain that entire system of all of the other stuff that got them to where they are. So if you need something that's like way out of the back of the TiVo book with some arrows and, you know, like some some like some like like some geolocating point that like points you here to get you perfectly set up to play a low G or whatever, like they can give you that. Um, and it's, it's not something that is so dogmatic. It's not Chickowitz or stamp. It's, it's kind of their own school of trumpet pedagogy that you just need to be there to experience. And, uh, um, yeah, someone will write a book one day on, their impact on this weird niche community of trumpet playing. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that both of us would, I would say that I'm just incredibly, incredibly lucky and fortunate to have, uh, have been under their wing for even for a short time. Yeah, I would certainly agree. I mean, the life that I have right now is due in large part to her guidance and their guidance. Um, hang on just a sec. Cool. I'm back. Um, so for me, there was a dark side of this, and I'd be curious if you experienced this as well. When I was, I totally agree with you about the sort of motivational aspect. You know, when you go into a lesson and you're not really believing in yourself and the barber kind of beats you up a little bit over all the things that could be better, but then she li- she would leave. And when you left, she would look at you and go, bravo. And you're like... But you can do it. Oh, yeah. all right. I feel okay, you know? And I think she is the beneficiary of like a career of doing this, first of all. So like, it's not just from nowhere, but she's the beneficiary of like total trust, generally speaking. And what I noticed was I did well in some auditions because I would ask her, do you think, what do you think they're going to think? If if I played this way for this round, exactly the way, like, so if I played for them the way I just played for you, how do you think that they would like it? And she'd go, Brian, I think they're going to love you. I was like, all right, I guess I'm ready to win this audition, right? And I I would, like, it's almost this confidence that was instilled in me by being around her and being coached by her. The problem was, is when I left and I no longer had her to instill that confidence, I didn't know how to generate it. I didn't know how to generate it without her being the one to tell me and seeing her every single week. And so... I went through like some dark periods in my playing just in general of like not caring about it as much because I didn't understand how to get better. This is where all of my stuff that I talk about now, I've told the story a few different times, but I'm curious, did you have any experience like that or were you able to really take the stuff she gave you and continue to use it and not really hit this dip that I hit? Well, I, th- I think I think something that's, that's a little bit disparate about our circumstance is that, um, you know, obviously you have a uh, position and, orchestras and et cetera. And I still live in town then, you know, I'm still right down the block. And, um, I think something that really helped me was knowing that I had them available. I had them on a whim if I needed them, but knowing that they equipped me with much of the kind of knowledge and headspace to be successful on my own. And them actually reaffirming that. So telling me that, you know, Dan, you're going to be fine. You sound good. And uh, things will take care of themselves if you keep working in the manner that you do. So 
firstly, I didn't have the same separation anxiety that you had from Barbara. Um, Barbara and Charlie. I mean, I still play for both of them. And actually play with Charlie quite frequently at the opera. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was that little bit. And also, I think the degree to which Barbara and Charlie were humanized. I think whenever you study with someone, whenever you meet with somebody, especially a rice, when you're spending so much time around them, you realize that they're not these superhumans um, that they feel. Uh, it, it's not like every day is your best chop day or their best teaching day necessarily, that they go through the bends just like we all do. And to kind of adjust your expectation on that basis, that you're not going to have a life-changing lesson all the time, every day. Some lessons might be a bit counterproductive. You know, maybe it would have been best for me to just hang up the trumpet for, you know, five seconds or something. But um, the lessons that were instilled, I still have this big folder that I go back to all the time of Barbara's comment sheets. And I think if there's anything that's kind of like a logo of the of, of no. the experience studying with Barbara and Charlie, it's got to be those comment sheets. And they're so comprehensive. And, and the other crazy thing about the Barbara and Charlie divide is that they kind of fill in each other's blanks. Like Barbara will be talking about, like we'll be speaking in code, a kitten tiger to a soft uh, singer's rest and, and all of this kind of like nuanced language that she has codified over her very long career. And Charlie's just like, sharp, still <laughs> sharp. You've been sharp since the beginning, kid. <laughs> it's all right. So was Bud. You know, like, and it's it's this amazing kind of uh, harmony that they generate between the two of them. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. So anyway, to I to, to answer your question a little bit more directly, uh, it's it's uh, yes, there were some dark points, but. I never laid that at the feet of them. I put them yeah. uh, in, in, in my own kind of arena. Yeah, uh, I mean... That could just be my, like, self-effacing no. Irish Catholicism. Who knows? I think it's fine. I mean, I'm not trying to pull anything in particular out, right? I'm just sort of speaking from my own experience and seeing if it's the same because, yeah. I mean, there was a period of time where I was, uh, I was angry. There's 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 been two times in my life where I've been angry at the instruction I received or, or the, the, my interaction. The first one was after I finished at Tanglewood and I had listened to Tom Rolfs play the trumpet and he was talking about, like he was just playing in these different sound worlds and then he was like, you know, like I wanted to move closer to that and he was talking about how to do that. And then I got the sense when I started with Barbara that I learned how to play everything well, but the same. You know, I had this sort of same articulation, the same sound. And I got really upset because I didn't remember us talking about things like color and how articulation changes that and all that kind of stuff. And then I ultimately came to the conclusion that I really think she set me up to be able to ask those questions and do something about it, which is I was no longer angry. It just I sort of needed to like work through that. And then the other thing I still don't know if I've worked through, I'd have to talk to her about it, but just I was self-destructing as an individual when I was at Northwestern. You know, the pressure of wanting to become high-functioning um, and, and sorry, the, uh, being a high-functioning individual that wanted to become, you know, a professional travel player at the highest level, I just, like, couldn't really handle the pressure I was putting on myself. So I was self-destructing and just getting, like, you know, like, as drunk as possible on the weekends. And 
like I think she knew about it and we just never had any talks. There was no like, hey, Ryan. Did you try that with Valhalla Rice? Did I ever take you to Valhalla Rice? Yeah. Well, I don't know oh, if you, I think gracious, you were there. Yeah. I went there the very first time I, I I showed up. It was like 25 cent beers or something like that. Yeah, try doing that on, on a 95 cent beer. No tax, baby. No tax. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's drunk o'clock. Well, and I just, I remember feeling like the only, the most important thing that, and all that mattered was how am I playing the trumpet almost? Like, am I reaching that goal that I set for myself? And so, but I've, I'm sort of working through that currently like right now i'm not really angry about it i'm just trying to figure it out but and and then so this discussion of like was i adequately prepared to teach myself right <laughs> i'm not necessarily laying it at their feet but what i feel is that because i was so willing to just blindly follow what she said i don't know if i was really digesting how I would do this for the myself. Why. You know, I was just like, I'll just the do what why. Barbara like, tells me. Why am I doing Yeah, like, yeah. how is this working? What's this fix? All that. And there's a lot that I did digest, but um, I, I don't know if I got the same kind of problem-solving skills out of her that I may have if I wouldn't have said her word is law, so to speak. I think that's why I framed it the way that I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that um, a lot of people who do well with Barbara... Um, are somewhat militaristic in their approach. Like, well, why would you question someone who's had so much success? But for people who are a little bit more introspective, for people who need a why, um, sometimes that creates a little bit of a rift. Um, I think both have their virtues and both have their pitfalls. I, I think if you're going to teach more kids, uh, if you're going to teach more students how to progress on the trumpet, you can't just take a prescription comment sheet from Dr. Barbara and say, this is what you need to do because she teaches each student very differently. And knowing the why as to you know why she prescribed you that thing on that day is is kind of like trumpet philosophy in a way. It's it's not so much of um, of this is going to work for everyone in this particular order. It's um, it's kind of artistic and improvisatory. It's, that's, I think, what makes Barbara such a great teacher. She she blends this kind of like artistry of playing uh, with teaching. So the whole the, the whole thrust of the experience studying with Barbara is one of wow. She's really like tapping into all of her teaching knowledge in order to get to the bottom of your problem. And and maybe it's the case that you know she has never dealt with something. Uh, like she's dealing with teaching you. It's always the case that it's new, it's individualistic, it's personal. Um, and I think that that is the thing that brings people back to her all the time, is just the fact that that her teaching style is so tailor-made. And I think it's our job, you and I as former students of hers, to do the legwork to ask the questions why. Sure, why sure. did she have me do this here um, at this point in my playing, why did she have me tongue stop everything for a week? Why? And it's just because I wasn't like sealing the tongue to the front of the teeth and I wasn't getting a clear ping and she thought my tongue needed to be farther forward. Whether that worked or didn't in the week, I've given that to students myself because I mean, you, you ultimately, you know, prescribe a lot of the things that work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's an interesting discussion. I appreciate your perspective because, um, 
you know, you I don't know if you're like this, but it can get easy to get like wrapped up in your own experience of what something happened and to start to make some conclusions about truth based on your one subjective experience. Exactly. Yeah. So it's good to 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 have talked to somebody else and to to be able who had a similar experience to be able to, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily incorrect by having my own subjective experience, but you know, you may not be enough of a sample pool to be able to start drawing some yeah, conclusions. Yeah, that's that's the other great that's the other great thing about having classmates. Right. Is is going through it all together. Yeah. And that even people at the top of the heap are just like, man, I scraped a couple notes in that casting, and uh, here you want to listen back to it, and it, it doesn't uh, it it doesn't have this kind of like, oh, those people over there effect. It's kind of like you're all in the grind together. Yeah. And uh, and Barbara and Charlie make it feel that way. Like you're all in the grind together. There's also like an interesting little conspiracy theory I have that, um, that, that I think Charlie really set the mold of neat, tidy, clean, um, kind of like this, this very kind of pointillistic way of playing where everything is, is so, um, kind of beautifully pronounced and articulated like so much like a voice. And then, Barbara took a lot of what she heard coming out of Charlie's Bell that made him so successful in auditions um, and so charismatic. Like, oh my gosh, that guy just has this beautiful bell every time he plays. And then she figured out a way to teach that. And so the Chicago school has now taken on this like second or third, whatever it is, like second or third generation um, where, where Barbara kind of like codifies so much of the Bud and the Charlie and the Bill Scarlet and um, all of these people into a cohesive kind of like the the Barbins book, you know? Like, oh my gosh. This new school of, I hate myself. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, it's, it's just, um, I'll be interested to see the history that's written about their teaching because yeah. it's been... Uh, the the iron's been hot for a long time. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, Jim, Will, to Chris, to to Ansel, to to you, to to John, to Gabe, to all these guys who who I respect so much throughout the ages. Ethan, geez, like the iron has been hot for a long yeah. time. They found success in a lot of places. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a, actually a pretty solid segue into the next part because I'm. You know, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question, so I'm just going to ask it to you publicly. Um, you know, being being a Barber and Charlie student, I know the side of I got the job, I did the thing that I was there to do, but there's obviously Barber and Charlie students who have not won a job yet, right? They have not reached the thing that most of us, pretty much all of us wanted to do. And uh, so I'm curious uh, what that's like, you know, is there like a pressure of being that person or have you like just made peace and be like, I'm going to do my own thing. My assumption is the second one. And then I just kind of, I'd be interested in your, you know, your, some of going through some of your audition history and then kind of what freelancing looks like, because it's, it's funny. Like we see the people who win jobs and we're like, oh, they've got it all together. And then the people who don't, Barbara talks about this all the time. And then the people who don't win the jobs or who are like runners up or whatever, it's like nobody even, you know, I mean, that person is like basically as good as, as, or ready or prepared, but you know, they just go back to like doing the thing that they were doing or whatever. And I know you've had a, a number of close calls. And so 
um, I think it, it would just be interesting to sort of unpack some of this if you're willing. Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's definitely the expectation about winning a job with with the Barbara and Charlie legacy. You can't really not see yourself in that lineage of people. Um, it's hard to be incredibly individualistic about your thinking while also knowing that you exist within some sort of tradition that's like formulated a part of your identity. I mean, every time I apply to an orchestra, Rice, I'm sure, does some heavy lifting for me. Um, it's kind of a sorting mechanism, as it were. Um, oh, studied with these teachers. Okay, yeah, the trumpet section recognizes that that was something of significance. Um, but then playing the audition is something that's, I think, much different and serves up humble pie, hot and cold, you know? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I've been close in a number of, of substantial auditions. And um, I think, yeah, that expectation doesn't always help until you're in that final round and you're kind of uh, King Kong on stage, which is, I think, generally how my brain is situated. Like, I generally play a little bit better under pressure. Um, I generally have, uh, have a kind of I can do it mentality around trumpet playing, plenty of other things that I can't, but around trumpet playing, it's always seemed to work. And I've always had kind of like an intuition around, around playing that has served me well. So auditions, not all of them. Um, and then just this consummate workers mentality around progress. Uh, knowing that it's not the end of the road because one audition didn't go your way. Um, and then there were also some key signifiers very, very early on. Like I advanced to my first audition. Um, I advanced in like my second and third audition. Then there was a long period where I didn't advance in auditions. There was a period where I was getting to finals frequently. There was periods where I wasn't getting to finals frequently. Um Knowing that you have, sorry to beat this this hobby horse, but knowing that you have a kind of backstanding love of music making and that you really, really enjoy what you do, I think will at least has kept me on the straight and narrow through the downtimes. Um, it was strange because as I first got to Rice, I advanced in a principal audition uh, for, the, for the Charlotte Symphony back in like 20... 13, I think it was. And then I advanced in an Air Force audition. Um, I was like, wow, maybe this trumpet thing is working for me. Thanks, Ronald. That was awesome. Appreciate you. And, and then I got to Rice and did advance in a bunch of auditions. Um, and I think that throughout my auditioning career, there's just been a faith that um, it's going to work out in some substantial way. And not to sound like um, like holier than thou, but I don't think that that's something that's easily taught. I don't think that you can very easily have faith in yourself when all of the kind of chips or or kind of real world evidence is saying like you should you should really go back to school to get your 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 MBA or something. Um, that's never really been a thought of mine. Um, and then, of course, I, I also had an infrastructure around me with the work I do with the opera, with the occasional work that I do with the symphony that has told me, you know, 
there are still substantial groups of people that believe in you. You just need to remember that and get away from this negative, this, this negativity bias that your brain has. You know, that if you get a thousand compliments on your playing and then someone says, yeah, the G was a little sharp and your articulation is a little woofy and those were a little bit wobbly. You're going to remember that person much more sure, than you're going sure. to remember a thousand people who were, who were consummate supporters and telling you how great you sounded. Yeah. I'm absolutely that way when I, you know, on social media or podcast or whatever it is, you know, you put something out there and tons of people say it's great. And then, you know, one person comments negatively or something. And, you know, it's easy then to, for me, at least it's easy to turn it into, well, nobody cares. Even though like in the same like comment thread, there's tons of support. It's really easy to, it's all, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm like necessarily looking for a reason to like, oh, I'm out, you know, and this comment is my way out, so to speak. But it's just so easy to, yeah, focus on the negative. I think you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, it's funny because when you're when you're like in a job, and I'm not going to try to pretend that it's because you know I'm not in like Chicago and everything would be magically fixed if I was in uh, you know Chicago, New York, Boston, whatever, right? When you're in a job. Like you just lose basically all feedback systems completely. And you're just like doing the thing and you're just like, well, let's assume I know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know? Let's assume, and I'm not going to say you can't get better, but I think it's a very, I don't think that's any different. Like you have to have your own sort of personal desire to continue to urgency, something. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think the job gives that to you at all. I think the job can fool, like, the job can make it so you're constantly getting ready for the next thing, which can feel like you're possibly improving. But I don't think it inherently, maybe in the beginning you'll be getting better, but I don't think inherently that drives long-term progress the same way continually addressing your weaknesses are. So it's funny, some of what you described doesn't isn't fixed necessarily with the job either. So like that muscle you're flexing now is only going to benefit you. You know what I'm saying? Like you develop something that's only going to benefit you whenever you do land the job that you have, you're going to have a healthier relationship with it at that point, which I think is worth everything. Yeah, I, I think that something really, really important is just to to never see trumpet playing or music making as an end point. Like it's just this continual process, not to sound so, so um, like Pollyanna, it just sounds like overly optimistic about it, but it's... Uh, it's just constantly, especially on fucking trumpet. Sorry, like <laughs> especially on a G-rated podcast. Children, I'm sorry, um, but it's just this this incredible process of consistently meeting yourself. You know, you're you're always finding new mistakes to make and different sides of your artistic personality that are insufficient. Or I can't believe I did it that way. I can't believe I was thinking in that headspace when I played that one thing that one time and um, just, it, it, I think it, it really just takes radical acceptance of who you are in the moment. And, uh, and I, like I said, I, I'm just continually grateful to be a part of that, like death of, of, um, of who I was before I couldn't articulate. And now the rebirth of who I am now that I'm kind of learning to play piccolo because Everything comes with a cost, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's an incredible life to pursue. 
but that doesn't mean that it's always uh, milk and honey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what you just said there, I think would be a good thing to, to, to touch on. So using your journey with articulation, because I know it's been something you spent a lot of time and effort and blood, sweat, tears to, to work through and to get to a point where you could consistently produce the results you wanted. What you just said is to radically accept yourself in the space or the moment that you're in, do you find that easier to do after having developed your articulation to the degree that you have? Or do you feel like it, it is equivalent to how you felt before? Do you think it should be the same? Or do you think it's easier to accept as you progress? Yeah, I think, I think it's obviously predicated upon you having like something that you want to say and being able to say it. Um, but there was an amazing conversation I had with with uh, Chris Martin, principal Trump of the New York Phil, um, when he was in Chicago. And I, I mentioned something to him in passing. It was like my five seconds talking to him at the National Brass Symposium. Say, yeah, I've never heard you live. I've never been able to make it up to Chicago. I just wanted to let you, like, you, you sound so natural playing. And um, he said, like, let me let you in on a little secret. Like, took me aside, maybe could see the twinkle in my four eyes and... <laughs> somehow said to me, you know, uh, Dan, a lot of the things that people have always told me are natural in my playing have been things that I've really worked hard at. And that was just a, uh, an ice bucket challenge moment for me um, because it opened my eyes to like, you know, maybe this isn't all, you know, this guy being a natural player. Maybe he's found a school of thought that's helped him acquire this this resonance or like having as, as I always said, it's, it's like his nose is vibrating in the mouthpiece. His sound is so magical. Like <laughs> everything that could vibrate, it's vibrating. And um, and that's just something that I took to heart and said, I'm, I'm not going to make excuses for myself. Um, I'm going to just be diligent about my, my progress and try and seek out as many opinions as I can, but have like a personal guiding light that says, I'm going to just work. I mean, absolutely. I think... We sometimes forget that the statement that you're good at the things you do is true, you know? And I mean, it's an oversimplified version of that, especially the higher you get up. Like, it, the more skill you develop would be a better way to say that. Like, it becomes harder and harder to, you know, see noticeable progress. But I think many of us say, like, I'm not good at something. That means I shouldn't do it. That means that's mm. not something I do. Instead of, I'm not good at something. What would it take for me to develop that thing, you know? And obviously having what what's, again, I think so important about your approach is that you have this these models to pull from from how much you've listened that you can just pick. Like right now, I'm into Hokan's articulation right now. And so you could just pick that and you can say, okay, like what's the difference between Hokan and me? And as long as you're willing to be real with yourself and kind of have this conversation about I'm not where I this radical acceptance as you described it, you can actually make some progress because you don't have to pretend you're somewhere where you're not. Yeah, and, and if anyone who's listening gets the opportunity, you should just listen to, to Hoken do these incredible bell attacks. Um, and and it, it sounds like it travels to different zip codes in every <laughs> direction. A friend of mine uh, once told me, like, Hogan's like one of the only sounds I've ever heard. Like it hits my ears from the back, not from the front. Like it's it like envelops my noggin or something. Yeah. I was like, man, you smoke too much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you like to have fun here. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. If if you're willing to be honest with yourself, you might not get exactly the same product that you're striving for. Um, but you'll get closer. Yeah. You'll approach the thing. And um, 
there's a really uh, influential video that I watch um, a lot of the time from a jazz pianist named Bill Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks, I think the name of the video is The Creative Process and Self-Teaching. And um, he talks at length about how doing simple things in a, in a real way, simple things in a way that you understand every one of the moving parts um, brings you much, much closer to that kind of artistic truth than doing something that you have a vague understanding of because you can't replicate that. You can't reproduce that at multiple stages of complexity. Whereas if you do something very, very simply once, I mean, similar to what you do with weightlifting or, or trauma progress, like if you know exactly how you're doing something, uh, that is something that uh, you, you can replicate at multiple levels of complexity. If you know how you do something very simply, which on the trumpet is, is oftentimes, which is you know most scary. Schumann too is on auditions for a reason. Um, then it, it really shows some base level of of understanding, and and you'll be able to um, progress with that over many days, weeks, months, and years. Um, Whereas, I mean, a, a story that it brings me back to is triple tonguing. Like I used to just, when I was in high school, just like, in some sort of triplet pattern. And then I thought to myself, like, is it really important that I go, like, is that really important? And I thought to myself, well, if the pattern is exactly the same as my double tongue, how am I going to differentiate between the two? Like, yes, it is important to go slow. Yes, it is important to have uh, multiple ways of tonguing things because you're going to one day be playing Alvarado. You, you might one day be playing Scheherazade and you're going to need a specific skill. You're going to need that on call immediately. Yeah. And if you've kind of approximated the whole equation up to that point, uh, you're playing with fire. This is the exact reason I actually asked that question about the simplicity of like hear a great sound and play because I think it, if you take that too literally for too long, it doesn't really make room for the understanding of how the mechanism works, right? It, it's just mm. like I'm taking, and I think in the end, that level of simplicity is all that matters, like in the end. Like when we play the trumpet, that is what's happening. There's no doubt about it. But like you're talking about being able to understand and break some stuff down so we gain a level of complexity is for that exact reason, so that we can reproduce it so that we can, I mean, from a scientific perspective, so we can you know, wrap myelin around the neurons and so, yeah. so that we can have access to that skill, like boop-de-boop, right? All that matters yeah. is that we can do it when we want to regularly because consistency, especially as an orchestral trumpet player, is is the top in my opinion, that's the top thing that matters. It's like, can you make a great sound? Awesome. But if you can't make a great sound every time that you play, you know, or pretty much every time you play, you're not going to get hired. You know what I'm saying? Like, you need the ability to do it day in and day out. And that only comes from a general understanding. This is one thing I admire about Chris is you really get the sense he understands what's going on when he plays the trumpet, you know? Like, he makes it yeah, sound yeah. great and easy, but, like, he doesn't seem like he's just, like, I'll just like take a breath and play. Like it seems like he's thought a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and he's. I, I've also found that that he's uh, still just at the all-you-can-eat buffet, hungry as shit. <laughs> you know, he's like this nine hundred pound gorilla of trumpet information that is always just like seeking out new recordings and new things. 
Um, there was one story that I have uh, of that time that I got a lesson with him. Uh, we were playing also Sprague. Right? I won a fellowship through Rice. Um, and he, uh, I, I was super pumped about the lesson. We played a show the night before. I think it was a Thursday. And then we had a Friday lesson. It was this like pinnacle of my week. Um, and I asked him like, Hey, are we, uh, are, are we still on for nine o'clock? He said, yeah, it's going to be a little closer to nine fifteen. No problem. Uh, yeah, my, my whole day revolves around this. Um, I was going to be a little bit closer to nine thirty, and then nine thirty-five rolls around and he shows up and I was like, wow, this is fi finally, it's going to be a great experience to finally get to, to hear the emperor without his clothes because it's probably not warmed up. It's nine thirty-five. And the first horn he takes out in case Ryan is the piccolo trumpet. I was like, what is he doing? He's like, sorry. The first thing he says to me, sorry, it was the full stamp routine this morning over the half stamp routine. And so he was late because he was warming up mm. because he has this incredible uh, prioritization of, of his playing. And that was so inspiring after he could play the pants off of all Brock with his eyes closed. Um, and he still knew that this setup was so crucial to how he operated the rest of the day. And then, like, he just summoned expressive serpents and demons out of his trumpet. Like, we played Shostakovich Piano Concerto, and just the spin and the energy, it sounded like, like Siberia or something. It was just mm. so incredible to hear. And, uh, and all to come from such a point of humility, whereas he was warming up first thing in the morning. Um, it's something I think that we can all glean some information from. Yeah, that's a very inspiring story for sure. You like entranced me with that story enough that I forgot what we were talking about. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It does not happen very <laughs> often. Um, all right, so... Take your waiters, folks. Uh, let's talk about... Um, I mean, it's probably an extension of what we have talked about, right? An extension of this... What you're t we've just said of like you're taking trying to take the responsibility to drive your progress to find your inspiration and make sure that you're you know staying motivated to move forward. You just did a recital uh, that looked like it was pretty sweet, pretty fun. Uh, I'm kind of curious, yeah. like, are these is this a an extension or sort of a realization of this desire to keep yourself moving forward? Do you view it that way, or is it just like I kind of want to do a recital? Well, I mean, I I was. Uh... I was reached out to. I was. I was um, contacted. I was playing a gig with. I was contacted. Reached out to. What a <laughs> fucking weirdo. Um, I was. Was contacted by an agency. Now, one of my friends, Spencer, has a has a concert series that he puts on with another one of my good friends, Natalie. Um, I was very fortunate that after we played um, like like a one off opera gig at a church, Spencer was like, "Hey, I've been hearing some of the stuff you've been putting on Instagram. Sounds good. Would you like to play a recital?" I said, yeah, of course, Just, I have nothing on the books, so yeah, throw anything at me. Um, reached out to my good friend, actually one of my best friends, Tetsuya Lawson, who plays principal of the opera here. He was gracious enough to play, and then it was just really a race to find people who I've always wanted to hear and play with. Steve Curtis, who plays principal tuba of the Austin Symphony and the Shreveport Symphony. Uh, Kirill Kuzmin, who plays, uh, who's a coach at the opera, and uh, was very fortunate that they donated their services without like asking twice. It was all donation based. So um, we were just trying to, to just pedal to the metal on, on marketing. Um, 
and yeah, it, it went really well. I uh, played for a lot of friends leading up to it. Um, one of my good, you know, uh, Anthony, Ansel, I, I owe so much to those guys because they just heard me play a bunch of stuff and gave me new, fresh perspectives on what I might be able to think about, do differently, be a little bit more vulnerable here, be a little bit more conservative here. Um, and yeah, was, I guess now that I think back on it, yeah, it was a desire to keep moving forward. But when I actually um, think about the process of the music making, it was just fun. Yeah. Just, um, just uh, yeah, I, I like the process of music making. I like playing solos. Um, and I uh, was very fortunate to have the opportunity, opportunity to do so in front of a captive audience. <laughs> uh, and we got a bunch of beer, so that that's was legit. Yellow o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I did a few recitals when I first got to Alabama, but I could tell that the the the, you know, when we talk about, I think about it in terms like this. What justifies the work? That's like what I I almost I think about it in these terms, and so what justified that work? What made it worth it was that I was basically forcing myself to play stuff that was really hard, so I could get better at the trumpet. Like there wasn't as much of, I love this music. It was, I'm going to program the hardest recital I can imagine. I did one that was like all Russian stuff. Like, Oh, the Peskin. You can't play that. Right. Yeah. I remember. Well, I, so I played the Peskin, the Burma, the Burma sextet, Slavish fantasy, and the Brant concert piece. Number one, that was that recital. And then the next year, I played a recital that started with the Brandenburg and then just went from there. Jesus Christ. Right. But that was the idea was like, I need to push myself because I need to get better. You know, I didn't have this like functional way to just like, I'm just going to put in the work daily and address my weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's sort of my, my, my response to that is it's, I don't know, it's just exciting. It's so cool to hear that you're, you have a relationship where, you're like, it's just fun to put it together and I'm excited to make music versus like, I need this or else I'm going to feel like I'm not getting things done. You know what I mean? I'm not being productive or something. Well, well to clarify, the, 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 to clarify, the pandemic uh, sucked uh, beginning to end. I mean, <laughs> having all of this, this inertia behind my trumpet playing and then uh, having to what? Uh, play Poder etudes? Like, oh, really time to dig into my... Uh, soft playing, like all of this vague technical, not bullshit, but it, like it was important to dig into, but you, you always want the feedback of performance. You always want um, the ultimate test to be, did I move people? Did my colleagues actually, were they, were they receptive to what I did? And when it's just you, uh, that's a lot of bandwidth to to, to dedicate to your own growth and progress. And it's not always the best because you have no place to actually bet whether you got better at something. Pressure as a trumpet player is like where we make our money, um, where the, uh, the chickens come home to roost. Uh, what a stupid thing to where say. Where the but, butter <laughs> is churned overnight. <laughs> where the <laughs> butter is churned, Daddy Warbucks. Yeah, but like it's just where you find out uh, how solid your preparation sure, sure. was. And um, to have all of that taken away, I would just jump at any opportunity to play, any church gig. Um, Barbara wants to hear me. Um, any in-person teaching, like I I'll jump at anything because 
trumpet playing is really the sustenance of my professional life. Yeah. You know? That's, a, that's good. I like it. Trumpet's fine. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, I just... It's interesting to listen to you because I just don't feel that way. You know, I, mm. I, I don't, I think I can remember a time where I felt that way, but I'm so like my justification for what I'm trying to do is like, I've I got this practice coaching stuff now. And so I'm actually like experimenting so I can learn how to, I, I feel like I'm going to, I'm turning into like what you talked about, Barbara. I'm trying to like codify how I explain things to other people. That's like what moves me forward. Like I don't, I mean, yeah, it's like fun to play music and stuff like that, but I I don't have that relationship. I'm not like for me, it's it's like did I figure this thing out? Can I did I figure out how to do this thing that I couldn't do before with consistency and can I articulate that to somebody else? Because then I can share that with somebody else. It's so funny because I just find myself leaning more and more towards the education side of things after having convinced myself that you know, I want to be a performer, like a big time performer. I find for personally much more joy in pushing myself as hard as I can for the sake of trying to be able to help others figure it out for themselves as well. So it's just fun to- Yeah, that's that's also, whenever anyone asks me, oh, Dan, why do you want an orchestral job, this, that, or the other? Um, one of my reasons is because I love the music and, excuse me, and that um, it's kind of a self-evident thing. I've always really loved to play. And why not make money doing what you love? But the other side of that is uh, very much to what you said, and that I want to be able to um, be charitable with performance opportunities, with gigs, being a principal trumpet player, as you were to me, um, and still are, uh, having me on the podcast, having me out to play, um, is giving opportunities downstream to people who you believe to be deserving of those opportunities. And... Uh, and I would like to be um, someone who is able to give that back. Now, I do a lot of teaching, so I see people improve over many days and weeks. Um, but in terms of the orchestra job, you know, I, I'd like to have the power to be able to give some up-and-coming student a, a gig. You know, not because it's some sketchy, political, bullshitty quid pro quo, but because this person really needs this trumpet thing. Yeah. This, this trumpet thing is more than a, than like a varsity letter on your jacket and, um, uh, you know, like uh, just, just an opportunity to play a solo at the 50 yard line. This is something that really means something to this person. Um, like on a, on a deeper level than you can just articulate with like, oh, air down the tube, a little bit more bottom lip. Have you thought about your tongue position today? <laughs> um, that's, that's all filigree compared to actually uh, making a sound and, and loving to create something. Yeah, uh, I think. And yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was just gonna say. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just gonna say I think you're absolutely right, and I, I, I tried to take my position as many times as I had opportunities, and it, with that, you know, with that to heart, you know, bringing you. I brought out Sam before he started in Richmond. Brought out my friend Robbie. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Like the ability to remember what it was like when you would have killed for an experience like that, basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think it's, it's a cool part. And also and, and not, to, to come full circle, um, not to, not to kiss your ass, but, um, there's I, going to see the New York bill. Um, I would always wait by the stage door just to get like a quick glimpse, like 
uh, wow, that's really Phil Smith. He's a person. He puts his pants on one leg at a, one leg at a time. <laughs> and it, it was just weird that there was this like cult of personality that that was around the stage door. Joe Leslie, Phil Smith, Chris Martin, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, you know, you actually talk to somebody in your kitchen at Maxwell Terrace at Indiana University. This is a principal trouble. This is Ryan Beach. Um, and you actually get to meet these people and you realize that they're going through a lot of the same stuff that you sure. are. And that they're not really that different. In fact, they're much more the same than you would give them credit for. Uh, maybe they have a superhuman ability um, to, to turn a phrase, to um, get a certain color, to blend with the woodwinds, um, to, to place things and time things. But really, they have a lot of the same insecurities as you do, and they're just trying to find ways to cope with them. And as you said so wisely, I think when you show somebody the time to actually listen to them, to look at them in the eyes and say, uh, I, I'm here for you, man. I, I, uh, I want to opine. What do you think about the current state of trumpet playing? What do you want to sound like? What's important to you as an instrumentalist, as, as a musician, as a macro, as an artist? That's, uh, that it means the world to young players. And it did, it did to me and it still does. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I think as much, at least from my perspective, as much as we can just be like people, it takes the pressure off of like, I don't want that pressure. You know what I'm saying? I don't want that pressure that like, me as a kid seeing me as a professional would put on myself of like, oh, you're up on this like possible mm. pedestal. I don't want that pressure. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, to me, I'm as like as average non-special as a person as it gets. And sometimes I get my head wrapped up in like, oh, you can do this. And like, you could do this great thing or whatever. But it, like, it always sort of seems to like, boiled down to like, I'm just like living, you know, like you live your life. And I imagine everybody, all professionals, like some people I think try to take advantage of X position that they have because of whatever um, clout may come from it. But I think in general, I think we all just like want to try to play our jobs and do our stuff with as little pressure as possible because trying to do it at a high level is pressure enough anyway, I think. Yeah, but, but also be aware that there's some up-and-comer in Alabama right now for whom like the Alabama sympathies, the whole world. Yeah, yeah, maybe. For whatever reason, you know, just trying to get away from shit at his high school or, um, you know, family life sucks. And like the symphony is where he, he gets away from all of that nonsense. And uh, he does it not necessarily through classical music, but through the trumpet. Mm. It's, it's not this like big macro Mahler symphonies are supposed to encompass the world, blah, blah, blah. It's wow, the way the trumpet sounds is, is really cool. What's that guy's name? Ryan? Cool. Derek. Oh, is he available for lessons? Dope. Yeah, let's try that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and that is, uh, I mean, not speaking for that kid, like there's there's a certain degree to which I'm still that kid. <laughs> Dude, this has been great, man. I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah. I love having co- we Yeah, definitely have to do it uh, again in the future because yeah. there's just more to talk about. Uh, I never do this, but I feel like it could be really fun with you. I typed in Please. Uh, online uh, like lightning round questions and I'm going to ask you a few of them. Are you ready? This is where I get canceled. Yeah, I'm ready. Cake or pie? 
Ooh, cake or pie. I mean, it would obviously depend on the type, but uh, I'm I'm still a recovered fat kid, so I will go cake. <laughs> no fruit. No fruit. Godfather or Star Wars? Godfather. No question. From New Jersey. A, a town called Verona, New Jersey. So <laughs> plenty of Italians. Shout out to Anthony Lomicelli. How many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? Uh, with or without COVID. Um let me think. Ooh, not a good answer. Not a good answer. Uh, I sneezed at the gym earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go three. All right, three. Do you like the word dapper? That's just a, a <laughs> that's a one of the questions. questions. That's yeah. it. Do I like the word dapper? I usually only when it's being referred to as dapper Dan. Sure. Only when it when it connotes uh, my black T-shirt. Uh, all right, going with the. Oh, here we go. Uh, say good day, mate, in an Australian accent. I feel like you could do this. Hi, right, Mike. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, goodbye, mate. <laughs> no. See, this is why I don't. Shout out to Tetsuya. This, this is why I don't like these things. Like, on a scale of one to ten, how good are you at wiffle ball? Like, what is that question? Uh oh, wow, wiffle ball. Uh, I mean, obviously depends who's pitching, but uh, but yeah, I, I'm pretty good at baseball. I'm a fairly athletic dude. Uh, minus the whole lifting thing and looking aesthetically not red. But yeah, besides that, this yeah, is I'm, ridiculous. I'm damn good at wiffle ball. Does that person want to fuck with me wiffle ball <laughs> I will play wiffle ball with anybody wherever, whenever. Don't at me. Dude, I would love to get a group of people together and play some wiffle ball. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Who's the most athletic trumpet player we know? I mean, Jeff Strong comes to mind because, I mean, that last name. Um, uh, I think I think Chris Hikes. Well, Chris Smith is like a CrossFitter, which is like pretty, you know, athletic-y. Yeah, he's a beefy boy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Chris Smith, if you're listening. I think we met once at a bar, but yeah, he looks super athletic. I mean, obviously, Ryan Beach. No, I'm not. I'm not athletic. I just can pick some stuff up. I don't consider it my, you know what I'm saying? If you have, I oh, can't run on. a mile. Like you're gonna make all those spreadsheets, so I can't call you athletic. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're athletic. You're athletic. All right, man. You're gonna color code a spreadsheet, so I cannot call you athletic. Not on my watch, Daddy Warbucks. <laughs> what? I color coded a spreadsheet. No, I, I just I know you have oh, all yeah, these. Yeah. That's uh, true. These these programs, but uh, it's been great talking. Yeah, about. dude, absolutely. Um, I usually try to end this with just how people might get in touch with you if they wanna if they wanna. Uh, cancel you or if they want to tell you you were awesome and great how would people find you uh well you i could not be found on twitter thank god for that <laughs> uh, i can be found uh via my email egan period daniel 1111 at gmail.com i know the l and the one kind of bridge together 1111 is my birthday very lucky boy oh. um and i can be found on instagram d-e-t-p-t uh, is my handle Dan Egan Trumpet. And uh, if anyone is ever down for a lesson, I offer them via, uh, not Skype, because no one uses Skype, Zoom, FaceTime. And uh, I'm always happy to talk. Yeah. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all whatsoever, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Also, do not forget to share this episode on social media so other people can find it and enjoy it themselves. Dan, 
Thank you so much for being on my show. It's always a pleasure to get to spend some time Brian, with you. Brian, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Uh, we'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. We did it, man. Hello, 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 that's not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is actually something that is a secret to most people, except for my immediate family, my wife's immediate family, and that's about it. And that is to say that I'm going to be a dad. We're pregnant. <laughs> and by we, I obviously mean my wife, who I think, like me, feels exactly as Dan's final words of this episode. We did it, man! And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.